Seamus Bruner is Director of Research at the Government Accountability Institute. He is the author of two books, one Compromised, the other Fallout, and now he has another one, Controligarchs, Exposing the Billionaire Class, Their Secret Deals, and the Globalist Plot to Dominate Your Life. That's our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Bruner. Mark, it's such a pleasure to be with you. The opening comment there, really the title, why not refer to the figures in your book simply as oligarchs? I mean, what is the, the control factor that you want to emphasize here? And that maybe, maybe you're implying that these oligarchs, these power brokers, they're a little bit different from oligarchs uh, in, in the past. What's going on there? Yeah, that's right. Most people have heard of the word oligarchs. It conjures up images of, you know, Russian industrialist billionaires on their yachts eating caviar, sipping champagne. So oligarchs are typically just extremely wealthy people, people with a uh, close relationship with the government. Um, that's what really makes them oligarchs and not just billionaires. Um, and more recently, we've heard the term oligarch refer to the guys in Silicon Valley, the big tech oligarchs. Um, what makes these guys different, though, because it's, they're not just uh, fat cats on yachts, uh, you know, eating caviar and sipping champagne, smoking cigars, etc. Uh, these guys really do want to control every aspect of your life. And so of the 3,100 or so billionaires in the world, there's only about 30 in this book. I mean, by... By and large, the vast majority of billionaires are, are great people and they use their wealth to do great things. Um, but these guys, people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, of course, George Soros, who's on the cover, and his son, uh, Alex Soros, these guys use their wealth to do not so great things. I mean, there's many great things they do, but many not so great things they do. And so this book grew out of the pandemic. I mean, all of a sudden, Bill Gates was just everywhere. And uh, a lot of uh, conspiracy theories started flying, things like pandemic and, and all of that. And so I wanted to separate the fact from the fiction. Um, I did, you know, crunch all the numbers uh, for the first time, really, and show that these guys, in, in some cases, more than doubled their net worths. People like Mark Zuckerberg uh, went from $60 billion or so to almost $120 billion today um, through the mm -hmm. pandemic because everybody, uh, is, you know, was locked down, stuck at home, scrolling Facebook for the latest Fauci guidance. Um, yeah. Jeff, Jeff Bezos, you know, close to doubled his net worth. And so that's not so surprising is the, the massive amounts of money that they made while the rest of us, our small businesses were shuttered. Our kids were kept out of school, et cetera. That that's not the thing that's so surprising. What is surprising is these industries. And so with Bill Gates, the farmland takeover, they, you know, they use the pandemic as, uh, in the words of Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Founder Forum founder, uh, it was an opportunity. The pandemic was an opportunity to rejigger society right. um, and build back better in a greener way. And people didn't really understand in July 2020 when Klaus Schwab announced the Great Reset, what did, what did a pandemic have to do with climate change? But we're starting to see it. P climate change is just the next crises that they want to leverage as an opportunity to not just get richer, but to construct systems of tyrannical control. So we can get into any number of those, but that's kind of how the chapters are laid out. The food control chapter with Bill Gates and 
the energy control chapter with the electric vehicles and the uh, you know smart yeah. homes and internet of things and smart cities, uh, financial control, et cetera. So any direction you'd like to go, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about. Well, uh, you know, the, the, these are not benevolent dictators. We'll, we'll see in the rest of our, our discussion. Uh, the, the controlling impulse, yeah, there, there's something, I think we all sense something creepy about it after a certain point with the, with the lockdown that maybe we hadn't really, really seen before. But let me, you go back to something, uh, a particular day in the spring of 2009 at Rockefeller University in Manhattan. What, what, what was that? What happened there? Yeah, so this is the uh, the inaugural meeting of the so-called Good Club. They called themselves the Good Club. Very, uh, very simple, not very creative. Um, and these are the good, the good guys who want to do good things. It's uh, Bill Gates. He's the convener with George Soros and David Rockefeller. They're kind of like the three co-hosts. And so they've invited, uh, you know, half a dozen or a dozen of their fellow billionaire buddies. I mean, Oprah Winfrey is there. Uh, Tiger Management, J Julian Robertson, uh, Ted Turner, founder of CNN, uh, Eli and Edith Broad, and just a handful of other billionaires. They all get together in the spring of 2009. The context is it's sort of the tail end of the global financial crisis. Uh, and so there's this populist mm -hmm. sentiment rising of, uh, you know, be just before the Tea Party and uh, Occupy Wall Street. So they could sense that the peasants might be starting to get unruly as uh, a lot of them, corporations like BlackRock, have uh, benefited uh, hugely from a global financial crisis while the rest of us, you know, got foreclosed on, et cetera. So that's that's part of the context. The other part is that Barack Obama has just been elected president. Uh, a lot of the people at the Good Club meeting in New York uh, had done a lot to get him there, George Soros especially. And so they wanted to leverage the Obama opportunity to their advantage. And so they they get together and Bill Gates sort of kicks off the discussion. And the reason I started the book with this is because a lot of people ask, well, these guys don't just like get together and, you know, smoke filled rooms and plot the, you know, domination of our lives, do they? Uh, they yes, actually, they do. And so at this meeting, Bill Gates, uh, he, he suggests that they all find an umbrella cause that they could unite their their resources into solving. And so what, what you think, well, what would it be? Maybe it's uh, malaria. Bill Gates really loves mal uh, uh, working on malaria. Maybe it's uh, poverty or starvation or, or climate change, possibly even though no. uh, this meeting was about solving the problem uh, in their minds of overpopulation. All, a lot of these guys, most of the characters in this book are sort of these Malthusian uh, overpopulation types who think that the earth is overpopulated. And I'll just say right now, that's a myth. It's never been proven conclusively that the earth is overpopulated. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary that we could, uh, you know, hold a lot more people than 9 billion. I mean, we're at 8 billion now up to 9 billion. Bill Gates says we need to cut that by 15%. Ted Turner, CNN founder is a little more extreme. He thinks that uh, under 2 billion is the ideal population of the planet. Uh, other World Economic Forum agenda setters like Jane Goodall, the, uh, the lady who studies gorillas, uh, she says closer to 500 million. And so they haven't really come up or they haven't publicized what they think the ideal total global population should be, but it's a lot less, uh, billions less. And so 
you know, I don't go into, uh, you know, whether there's some sort of nefarious secret genocide going on. Actually, I say they should take a victory lap because for the past 60 to 70 years, they've been working on bringing the growth rates down, especially in Western countries, uh, below the level of replacement. The level of replacement is 2.1 people. Every man and woman needs to have 2.1 offspring in order for the species to uh, continue on. And right now in a lot of countries, it's well under two, 1.6, 1.7. And that's been a very concerted effort. The Rockefellers, uh, all throughout chapter one, I show how the Rockefeller Foundation and other foundations like the Ford Foundation have right. poured untold sums, billions and billions of dollars. Eventually, they got the federal government to start chipping in on various methods of decreasing fertility, decreasing birth rates. Uh, abortion, of course, is like a primary way. You know, if women can have uh, abortions on demand and getting rid of the stigma and taboo around abortion was a huge uh, financial effort of the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, yeah. and, and in addition to that, increasing all types of birth control. Um, and then there's some more sinister methods that they've they've talked about. I don't say that they've implemented them, but they certainly funded the research into them. Things like anti-fertility vaccines where you could just shut down the uh, reproductive system of uh, of people and uh, something that they actually funded. This is in the 1960s and 70s, as they say, promoting homosexuality or a, the LGBTQ plus lifestyle would be a good way. And you can kind of see that now with uh, children taking hormone therapies. They don't think parents should be able to have a say in whether a child can basically castrate themselves. Um, and the thing about children uh, taking these drugs or snipping off uh, what have you uh, is those, those children won't be having children. They won't be reproducing throughout the rest of the world. It's a permanent change. Right. And so you can see why people who think that the earth is overpopulated would support that. And so that's really what the, uh, the good club is all about is they're about bringing down the birth rates, pouring their money into ways of uh, making sure there are less people. The, there's a good line in the book. It's like they're, their way of helping humanity is to make sure that there's less of it. Huh. Uh, but not less of, uh, I, I guess, uh, do they ever apply these things to themselves? Anyway, forget that. Forget that. No, yeah. Ted Turner's uh, got a lot of kids. They, George Soros yeah. got a, a five kids. No, no, they don't, they don't apply those rules to themselves. Right, right. Uh, but the 21st century, as you show, has given them ever more tools of control and ever more accumulations of, of wealth. One of them that you bring up early on is, quote, digital identification. What is that? How does that work? Sure. So uh, a digital ID is, is becoming a very hot button issue. Bill Gates is heavily invested in it. He's been invested in, uh, in various methods of digitizing and creating central databases that hold every piece of information about you. And so he, he has a, there's a great quote, um, I don't have it on hand, but it's back in uh, around 2009, actually, and cell phones are just smartphones, iPhones, it's, it's, you know, other smart devices are just starting to take off. And he says, oh, this is going to be so great. We're going to be able to have everybody get a digital ID and uh, use their digital ID that will, every piece of information from their purchases to, to where, where they're going to, you know, every, everything can be centralized on this digital ID and smartphones will make that possible. And so in a way they have, but that, that just shows you that Bill Gates has been working on this long before the pandemic. 
And then uh, still before the pandemic, there was this initiative ID 2020 that was by the year 2020, everybody globally will have a digital ID. And George Soros and the Open Society Foundation funded this. Google funded it. All of the big tech guys, all the control oligarchs, as I call them, hmm. uh, poured their money into ID 2020. And then the, uh, you know, these, these supranational organizations, things like the World Health Organization and the United Nations, they all uh, were very on board with this. They said, well, like, this is a great thing. And in fact, this will be great. And a digital ID will be a great way to keep track of people's vaccination records. They said this before the pandemic. And, it's, and you, someone who read that before the pandemic wouldn't really see the writing on the wall. Like, what do you mean my vaccination? Like the things I got when I was a kid, like my chicken pox vaccine or something. Uh, why would you care about that? But what the pandemic showed us, and that's why it's become such a hot button issue is this digital ID can essentially become like a like a Chinese style social credit score, where if you are uh, in the wrong caste of society, if you're among the unvaccinated, let's say, you're not going to be able to access goods and services. You're going to be right. shut out of restaurants. You're not going to be able to go uh, to any sporting events unless you show that vaccine card. And so, in states like New York, uh, California was fairly tyrannical about their IDs. Europe was really bad. They had the green passes and uh, Italy and uh, Israel had uh, the green pass, which was essentially if you don't comply. And so you just look at it past the pandemic. If you don't comply with some government mandate, your ID will either gain, if you do comply, it will give you entry. And if you don't comply, your digital ID will block entry for you. And so the, the pandemic, I, you hear it all the time. Oh, the pandemic's over. Why are we like, why are we still talking about the pandemic? And the point for, from this book is that no, the pandemic was simply the beginning. It's just a blueprint for the future. Uh, and the future looks pretty bleak. I mean, just last month, Bill Gates uh, and the United Nations hosted an event uh, called 50 in 5, where they plan to roll out digital IDs uh, within, uh, to 50 countries within five years. So we're sort of just around the corner from this becoming like a not optional thing. You mentioned the future. You, you quote the head of the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Foundation stating in October 2020, quote, there's no going back to the past to before COVID. We need to reimagine the future we want. Now, when I hear a statement like that, I, 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 get, I get worried, I get annoyed because I'm really not interested in having this fellow lay out my future. Uh, where, where does the arrogance come from? I mean, J.P. Morgan wouldn't have said this, you know, openly. Uh, John D. Rockefeller wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't presume to speak this way. This is, this is a, 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 this, has anyone ever seen this kind of hubris, this kind of hubris before? Never. No, it's, it is a truly a brave new world that we are living in right now. It's like a mixture of a brave new world and uh, the matrix or something. I don't know, but it is, uh, these people have like a God complex, but on steroids and you can see it. I mean, whether it's with forcing everyone, you know, I don't need a digital ID. I don't have any problem no. taking my driver's license out of my wallet and showing it where needed. Um, and while it might be convenient to not have to bring that driver's license around with me or, or some form of identification, that convenience is, uh, does not outweigh 
the the possible sinister implications of having a centralized database. I mean, there's other quotes in the book. So that guy, Rajiv Shah, he was, by the way, at the Clinton Foundation before he was at the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and so, yeah, you might have learned some hubris at, uh, while working for the Clintons. But uh, anyhow, uh, th there's uh, more more things that they're up to beyond the digital ID that are equally hubristic. And there's even more hubristic people than Rajiv Shah. It's uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Some some listeners may have heard of Yuval Noah Harari. He's this World Economic Forum visionary. Klaus Schwab quotes him extensively in his book. Um, and Barack Obama loves Yuval Harari. Uh, he, the, Mark Zuckerberg loves Harari. Uh, Eric, Eric Schmidt from Google. All the big tech guys, all the control oligarchs see this guy as this true visionary who's going to lead us into the future. Well, what does he say? He says about COVID, COVID was critical because it was the thing that allowed people to accept total biometric surveillance. Um, and what hmm. does that mean? It's like he's a, because of the pandemic, because of all the fear that came from the pandemic, people were totally willing to just give up everything, uh, not just their, you know, their freedom and their freedom to travel and all that stuff, but actually let random companies that you didn't even, never even heard of before, swab your DNA and, and test your DNA and take, take those samples without even reading like what you were offering up to them. And, and the same thing with, uh, the new treatment, I mean, all kinds of treatments, not just the uh, mRNA vaccines, but, uh, you know, all these new drugs, too, that came out of it, where it's just uh, like every it, they hadn't been t like totally tested for like long term efficacy type trials. Um, and so what what Yuval Noah Harari is saying is that because of that fear of the pandemic, that was so critical to getting people to just turn over uh, everything in their life to. Uh, unelected bureaucrats and uh, billionaires, essentially. And yeah. so, but he's, he goes a step further and not just the total biometric surveillance of what's going on above your skin. He says, we need total biometric surveillance of what's going on under your skin. And so then he gets into some really weird stuff with like microchips and, and stuff like mm. that. And you're like, this is totally science fiction, right? But then you go and look and sure enough, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are working on subdermal, you know, quantum dot tattoo technology and stuff that just seems like it should, it belongs in a science fiction novel, but every day is getting more and more dystopian. You go back in time uh, to the Rockefeller Foundation and others really doing heroic efforts to battle disease, to come up with, with vaccines. Are they living on that success now? in a way that, that, that seems to let them, let them get away with, with so much because we, you know, measles, mumps, you know, you know chicken pox, uh, malaria, that, that, that that's, does that give them sort of the warrant in their own, in their own heads, maybe in other people's heads to, to be con so, so controlling today? Yeah, completely, completely. And I mean, none, you know, John, John D. Sr., the guy who uh, invented uh, all of the ways to get oil out of the ground and created Standard Oil and probably the greatest oil man and uh, capitalist the world has ever seen, uh, certainly the world's first billionaire, um, John D. did not have anything to do with a lot of the, the stuff that the Rockefeller Foundation has become famous for. It was his son, Jr. And so John D. Jr., um, you know, it was enormous shoes to fill. And, and, and you can see this with a lot of wealthy families where the offspring are like, how the heck could I measure up to my father? 
And uh, what John, what Junior decides to do is to say, well, I'm not going to be quite the oil man my father was, but I will be the world's greatest philanthropist. And so he sets up a lot of these philanthropic endeavors. And it's really uh, into the third generation and you get, uh, you know, John D. the third, but then you've got David Rockefeller and Nelson Rockefeller and all of the more recent Rockefellers that, you know, were alive in our lifetimes. And uh, that's where they, you know, don't even measure up to the philanthropy and then they just go full blown into the control. But it was the early, in the early 20th century under Junior that the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research is set up. Um, and, and John D. Sr. is getting old. He essentially turns over the keys to the kingdom, much like George Soros has now to his son, Alex Soros, um, but, and starts funding things like the Birth Control League, which became Planned Parenthood. And I'm sure they thought that they were doing great things, especially with the disease research. But what I, I found in the book shows is that the more disease research they did, studying viruses and measles and, and stuff like smallpox and yellow fever, um, they would go into third world nations uh, and say, we can treat this horrible scourge that's uh, ravaging through your population. And what that did is those third world nations would essentially set up a quasi-governmental public-private partnership is the term you hear today with the Rockefeller Foundation. Well, at the same time, they were still capitalists and still oilmen. So that as the as the drugs rolled in, the, the resources rolled out. And so the they continued to get richer. And that's sort of a theme with the control guards here is, is it really philanthropy or is it just uh, sort of a method of, of a, a business model? And so, I, you know, Bill Gates has certainly picked up the Rockefeller mantle and, and done a lot of the same things that they have. Um, and, and many of them do where, I mean, they, they claim that they're donating all this money to charity, but what they're really doing is they're putting it in their 501c3 tax exempt family foundation. And then they use that foundation to do things that will make them richer. So I'll, I'll give you an example how Bill Gates does this today is he, he the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will publish white papers uh, and publish studies. And so the, then they feed those to the congressmen and the senators. And it shows that, oh, the like, and that's how a representative like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she'll come out and say that cow flatulence is you know going is a terrible thing for the planet and maybe we need to think about banning meat. Well, it just so happens that long before she got those talking points, uh, Bill Gates personally started buying up a lot of the farmland and eventually started investing in a lot of these fake meat companies like Beyond Meats and Impossible Foods. And so it's not a coincidence that they want to ban cows. It's actually a really uh, clever, uh, diabolical, some might say, business model where Bill Gates is just trying to ban the competition. And this is what got Microsoft in trouble with antitrust regulators in the 90s. It, they had this strategy, it was called Embrace, Extend, Extinguish, whereby uh, Microsoft would enter into an industry that would be the embrace phase. They would extend their reach. Uh, the specific example was with the internet browser. They put uh, Internet Explorer on every single computer. That's the extend phase. And then in the extinguish phase, they would, quote, cut off the air supply, end quote, to their competitors. And so that would be the Netscape browser in the 90s. And they would do this by pushing for regulations and changes to like standards and sort of technical stuff. But it would effectively be like, making it so that a YouTube vi video wouldn't play on the competitor's browser. Um, and so that's like how they would cut off the air. So people don't want to use that if you can't, uh, you know, you play YouTube on the other browser. So you want Internet Explorer. It's the same thing that he's doing in the farming industry 
where he's he first enters the industry, the embrace phase. He extends his reach. Now he's bought up close to 300,000 acres, making him the largest single private landowner in America and then uh, a farmland. And then he's also buying into the fertilizer companies and he's buying into a lot of other parts of the agricultural supply chain. And now he's pushing for changes to the regulations that will effectively ban the competition. Now, I don't think in America we're going to put up with having our meat banned, but they're working on it in Europe. I mean, Ireland is uh, preparing to slaughter up to 200,000 cows. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with cows. They're not going to kill the planet. It's actually a very efficient and effective way to get protein to a lot of people. But anyhow, so he's, he's in the extinguish phase right now. And, he, and even if the government won't ban cows, he's got a clever way of, he calls it a green premium, where you make the cost of the non-green item rise artificially to subsidize the cost of the green, so-called green product. And uh, P Mayor Pete Buttigieg, or I should say uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg actually said the quiet part out loud on this green premium model where uh, people may remember, he said, the more pain that you're experiencing at the gas pump, the more benefit there is to owning an electric vehicle. And so they wanted to jack up and put per mile gas taxes on, on gas powered vehicles. And in California, they want to outright ban gas powered vehicles so that they can subsidize the cost of the green alternative vehicle. And Bill Gates calls this the green premium. It sounds, uh, you know, it's, a, it's certainly a euphemism, but it's really sinister because actually uh, costs are rising in a really dramatic way. And a lot of people are feeling a lot of pain, not just at the pump, but especially at the grocery store. And so you may, you may just find that you go in to buy a ribeye someday and it's 35, 40 bucks and you decide, well, the alternative meat is, I guess, the best I can afford. You, you know, Seamus, you say it's sinister, but you bring up another issue here in discussing Klaus Schwab and other Davos people. They're not really hiding their intentions, are they? And, and if those intentions are out there, if one bothers to look, uh, is the populist outcry going to grow? Uh, in, in our last in our last minute minute or two here, uh, what's going to happen as they become more bold, more controlling, and more open about it? What's going to happen? Yeah, well, you've all know Harari says that uh, there will be no peasant uprisings. The revolts of past centuries and, and peasant revolts is uh, that's just not possible anymore. I hope he's wrong about that. I mean, I hope it's not bloody. I hope it's a, it's a peaceful revolution. Um, but as people wake up and I'm hearing, and I'm encouraged every single day and the feedback I'm getting on the book has been tremendous that it's opening eyes of people who they, who, you know, many thought their family member wouldn't be able to see the truth here, but you're right. It's all in the open. I mean, none of this is conspiracy theory. It would have been five years ago, five years ago, the stuff I'm talking about right now, you know, I'd be called a tinfoil hat guy and, you know, ignore him. But um, you can you can read it. The book has got over, uh, you know, a thousand endnotes and in, in highly yeah. credible yeah. sources, primary sources like the, the the white papers are all cited and all of the stuff from the, the foundations and from the UN, et cetera, World Economic Forum. So all the receipts are right there. 
Um, and when people see this, I mean, just go cruise the World Economic Forum website, you know, and what they talk about is taking control of every aspect of your life. They're not shy about it, that you will own nothing and you will be happy like it's a threat. <laughs> They're threatening you with that. And as people wake up, that's the number one thing you can do is share this information, wake up your your friends and family members. And uh, I think that people are not going to stand for this. You kind of see it. We saw it in the during the pandemic, they do not comply was a rallying cry. People really, uh, you know, took it to heart. And uh, that's the number one thing you can also do in addition to sharing the information is when they try to force things on you like a digital ID or a digital currency, you don't comply. So you but you've got to be armed with the facts so that you know what you're not complying with, because you might just yeah. I mean, that's the that's the other problem with all this stuff is it's it's it, it is awfully convenient. A lot of, st of these things that they're pushing are awfully convenient. It's like slipping into a warm bubble bath of tyranny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is more to the book. And, and you said that the deep research and the empirical data that go into it. But for now, the title is Controligarchs Exposing the Billionaire Class, Their Secret Deals and the globalist plot to dominate your life. Mr. Bruner, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. This was fun.